Welcome to Pivotal. I'm Hayat Gallo, Corporate Vice President for Commercial Solutionaries at Microsoft. I get to work with customers around the world to help them transform their business through technology. At the center of every transformation are people who give technology its purpose. They are the ones who spark visionary ideas for leveraging technology and have the drive to push them forward for their business while empowering others. We like to talk about technology. I know I like to talk about technology. And we often forget the heroes behind technology and transformations. You, we forget you. And that's what I want to talk about through Pivotal. You're likely familiar with the idea of a triple bottom line. That idea that an organization's success is not just about its finances, but also the company's social and environmental impacts. Today, we are lucky enough to learn from a leader and an organization that believes doing good is good for their bottom line and has proven it for decades. They're still on their transformation journey to do the most good for their members, the planet, and the broader community. Kit Wendt is Vice President of Strategy, Transformation, and Sustainability at REI. The co-op that we all know that not only sells outdoor gear, but also is the leading transformation company in retail. And it's not too surprising that Kate would end up at REI. Here was born and raised in Seattle. Um, both my parents were as well. And I think, you know, it's a wonderful place to grow up. And really, I think just in terms of a connection to nature and the land, right? I mean, it's all around you, mountains, you know, lakes, beaches, and I think really instilled in me a type of mindfulness, you know, like you have to look really hard sometimes to find a little crab under a rock or whatever that is. And obviously a lot of privilege also that came from growing up here, right? We have great schools. I was, you know, lucky to live in a great area that had great access to education and a family and connection and community that, that provided me with a lot of opportunities. So definitely want to acknowledge that as well. And though Kate's is not a Microsoft employee, she's actually had a very interesting experience with the company as a young person. This was back when I was in the fourth grade, so in the early 90s. Microsoft had, was you know, learning about, obviously, computer science and trying to understand what was possible from what age. Could kids actually grasp the concepts and the basics of computer programming? So we were tasked with doing something fun with it and creating our own video games. And there were going to be four lead programmers in the fourth grade class. And uh, I was chosen to be one of them, and I was the only girl. And it ended up being wildly successful. We did this great video game uh, in my area called Endangered Animals. You know, this was also not very sophisticated. I think back in the day, it was like Oregon Trail was the hot, you know, video game back then. So it was pretty basic, but at least maybe a little more positive than like, uh oh, you have dysentery. <laughs> Sorry, try again. So that was the focus of it. Microsoft was great. They actually produced, you know, like disc copies of all the games and packaged them for us. And we did like a, a drive to sell them to family and friends, that kind of stuff, and raise money. Um, but we actually went and presented to Bill Gates and, and talked about what had we learned, you know, what were the challenges, how easy was it or not to actually develop some of those skills. And it ended up being such an interesting experiment, again, relatively then being at young ages, that we went to MIT as well. And so we're kind of a proof point for how could kids learn to code, and specifically also how could girls learn to code. And so proving that from really early on. The punchline of the story is not that then I became... <laughs> A software engineer, unfortunately. But, you know, I think it really did lead me to question also, like, why was it considered so unusual that a girl would be a lead programmer and would, you know, be a leader in math and science and those type of skills? And 
I ended up fast forwarding way forward to um, was fortunate enough to go to undergrad at Stanford, and I wrote my honors thesis about occupational segregation and the gender wage gap, meaning why is it that the gender wage gap exists, you know, if you look at it from an economic standpoint. And a lot of it actually being explained not by women earning less than men for the same job, but that they were segregated to only certain occupations. And so that actually is really part of what inspired me to go into career in finance that was, I think, instilled by an early sort of drive or wanting to see what was possible for women and wanting to really make a dent of breaking into some of these sectors that really still had not been broken through as you think about traditional careers for women and men, even at the time, you know, in the early 2000s. From a young age, Kate was keenly aware of the inequities around her. Yet she was willing to put herself out there to try and make change. And if you think about Wall Street in the 90s, it was pretty much a boys club. Really, my goal, again, it had been like, hey, I'm going to break through. It set a goal to be one of the youngest you know, female senior analysts on Wall Street. So I did equity research covering retail and consumer, and then later healthy lifestyles and grocery companies. And uh, I made it. I was 29, had my own coverage on Wall Street. And unfortunately, kind of had this moment of being like, I worked really hard for a decade to do this. And uh, like, is this it? Is this really what I want? And I um, had a hard time reconciling, I think, you know, obviously the short-term nature of the street. And I think just not appreciating particularly types of companies that were um, prioritized a broader set of stakeholders. So now we're hearing a lot about that, right, in terms of, hey, it's not just about shareholder profits, but really, you know, was inspired by, you know, at this time was pre-Amazon Whole Foods and things that they were doing, particularly uh, with their suppliers and then equipping their customers really to be able to make different choices and have a different impact. And I, I knew from that moment that I wanted to only really be highly intentional about what type of organization I would choose that was really in it purpose-based to its core. And that was a pretty short list. Um, so it led me to REI um, pretty early on. For people who don't know REI, we are not just a private company, but actually a member-owned cooperative, so the largest consumer cooperative in the U.S. We have about 22 million lifetime members across the country, and we are actually just celebrating our 84th anniversary today. Once again, Kate took action to find a place where she could use her skills and her voice to create change. She says that the fact that REI is a co-op owned by its members really makes the organization run in a unique manner. Not only are they free from the influence of traditional shareholders, but because they're a big organization, they actually have the resources to go after their goals and their members' goals on a much larger scale than what the traditional retailers do. It really enables us and provides the permission to do much longer-term thinking and investment, right? And also to challenge ourselves to hold ourselves to a higher standard of how we would measure success. It kind of goes back to why we exist as an organization. So, you know, our fundamental belief is that time outside is fundamental to a life well-lived. Well, great, then why do we exist, you know, against that belief? It's really around inspiring and enabling life outside for everyone, you know, thinking about an inclusive lens as well. Well, how do we actually translate that into action? You know, what's our mission? And it's really around connecting every person to the power of the outdoors and equipping them in the fight to protect it. And I use those words pretty intentionally um, and having an edge around it. Uh, I think that that also relates to then what, how do we measure success? So a lot of people talk about double bottom line. We like to consider that we have a quadruple bottom line. So we gauge our success relative to key metrics we have around our employees, first and foremost, our members, 
which are really our shareholders, right, as well, um, as are many of our employees that are members, our business, and then broader societal impacts. Um, so, you know, we're going to make different types of decisions and really need to be in- intentional about where we're trying to go as an organization and making uh, different types of investments than you maybe would be able to if you're, you know, just thinking about the next quarter as a publicly traded company. But there's also a lot of obligation and duty that comes with that, right? We also feel like we need to steward this organization that's been around for nearly 100 years for another 100 years. As an outdoor retailer, REI has a unique conundrum. How do they manufacture and sell great products that will connect with people in the outdoors without allowing the manufacturing process to contribute to climate change? It's a really difficult question, and it's not one that they're shying away from. In fact, the way REI is approaching sustainability is having a ripple effect up and down the retail chain. REI is holding themselves to high standards on sustainability. But similar to Microsoft, they're also demanding the same from their suppliers. And they're educating and encouraging their members so that they can do the same. Some of that tension is actually inherent in really what's our, you know, our vision, our, you know, we, we do use the term BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal from Jim Collins, good to great. Like, what are we really trying to achieve? And there's multiple components of that. So we've laid out this vision or BHAG to become, um, to grow from being a 22 million member community today to 50 million by the end of the decade. Why? Right? I just talked about we're not a, we're not a public company. Like, it's not about growth for growth's sake. It's about growth for impact. So our theory of change is, If we could two or three X the size of our member community, and you think about those members, if we're able to equip them to actually be able to make change towards our two great impact priorities and really existential threats, which are climate change and racial equity as it relates to systemic barriers to getting outside, we can create this ripple effect of change. You think about the power of those people in their communities that actually tip the scales on those issues on a national basis, certainly, and maybe even on a global basis. So we really think about what is our role as we think about climate to um, not just reduce the footprint of what we are manufacturing? I'll get to that. Yes, uh, we do need to do that. How do we actually equip our consumers to be able to make better choices through our product impact standards for things like circular commerce, so our, our, our resupply business, rentals, et cetera? How do we really set the bar on sustainable materials? And so how are we actually reducing the overall impact of what we provide and creating that ripple effect for consumers to make better choices in their overall lives. So the hard truth, I think, around climate change, too, is like we could do great work and make a really small dent in the overall fight for climate change. But if we can actually create that ripple effect I talked about through our members, through our employees, and through all of our vendors, your Patagonia is your North Face, but also smaller vendors as well, that's how we're actually going to really mobilize change. Kate says one of the things REI is discovering is all the ways that getting real good data can help in the process. They want to understand things like how their members are using REI products, what they do with those products when they're finished with it, and what qualities are most important when they're shopping for a replacement. But they also want to learn more about the manufacturing side, like how much energy does it take to create a product, where does that energy come from, And is this item created in a way that it can be recycled or reused? Understanding these things can help REI do even more to choose product that their members will love and have lower impact on the planet. The other way we can think about it is actually through 
Number one, designing new products so that they can be reused, resoles, and actually have better end of life in terms of being, you know, repaired or disassembled. I think a key piece of thinking about the overall carbon life cycle of a product is how many times could it actually be used and reused by someone so that you're getting the most use out of that product and then at end of life you're disposing of it in a responsible way, hopefully recycling and actually fully taking it out and becoming a new product versus in a landfill. So for us, you know, we've actually been in the circular economy business for over six decades. So we've had what we call our garage sales in our stores for members only for a long time. It's been kind of a unique offering that we had of, hey, come and get amazing deals on great quality stuff that's secondhand. But it's largely been, the source of that has largely been out of stuff that has been returned and then may have a small amount of damages that we can't sell first quality, uh, but it definitely still has a lot of a life out of it. What we're trying to really do to expand that market is say, well, gosh, if we have 22 million lifetime members that have all this gear and apparel and other things that are sitting in their closets or in their garages and they don't know what to do with, maybe they want to trade up to something else. Maybe they want to make sure that it goes into hands of another member, you know, that can use it to be able to get outside. We've just expanded the ability for all of our members to be able to trade in products at any retail store as well as online. And that also opens up a great opportunity for those that are either new to, to the outdoors, the outside to activities, to be able to get into those at a much more approachable price point and still with a great quality offering. And then it has all these great sustainability benefits as well, because the carbon efficiency of something that is a new product versus something that is used is 50 to 90% of what it is of a new product. So we're really trying to create the market. It already exists. How do we amplify it and grow that as a unique member benefit that we can offer that has so many different co-benefits from a sustainability standpoint? Again, Kate's creativity and willingness to put her ideas into action has really brought about big changes for REI. But even more, this work is having an impact on others up and down the supply chain. If you think about anybody really in the consumer retail space, generally, as we talked about, largest source of your emissions is going to be in the supply chain. So that manufacturing a new product, particularly hard in retail and apparel, because there's a high level of fragmentation around your supplier base. So it's not like you work with a handful of suppliers and, you know, it's this the same person from raw material all the way to finished production. Um, it's very fragmented. And so, you know, we also have an issue of domestic versus international, meaning for a large part of product from raw material to production happens over in Asia, you know, large amount in China, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, et cetera. The issue being that a lot of the, the energy grid there is still off of fossil fuels. So what we really believe that we need to do is work with some other partners to prove out a model to transition the grid that's powering those factories towards clean energy. One of the brutal truths around climate change is that those that actually contribute the least to carbon emissions globally are those are going to have to face the, the biggest brunt of the impacts of climate change and largely in the same countries that I just um, referenced. So there are fortunately some models that have already been, been proven of things called a power purchase agreement or a virtual power purchase agreement. So we've actually seen companies like Ikea or Walmart um, just in the past year or two do some really interesting work in this space. So there is a proof of our model. What's needed and what we're doing now is trying to do diligence on what is that investment model? What would that actually look like? All of the different places I mentioned obviously have different level of you know regulations, incentives, those kind of things in those areas. Um, and we need capital, right? So we can put up our own, but we're going to have much more impact if we do it with a couple of other brands or retailers. 
REI has set a goal of being a zero-waste organization across all its stores, distribution centers, and headquarters by 2025. They've already been able to divert about 70% of the waste that used to go to landfills. And Kate says this is another place where the changes being made at REI are having ripple effects through all the retail industry. You probably experienced this if you do any shopping online. You know, a lot of stuff comes in these uh, plastic bags called poly bags. And, you know, it's a huge amount of waste. It's also just an operational hurdle. And what we've done is actually created a process for all of our stores to aggregate all of those. We backpaul them to our DCs and we sell them to treks and they become decking. Um, so when you think about also the idea of closed loop, what has been a pain point, we've actually created now a value-added service for many of our brands to actually be fully taking care of that waste and transforming it into something new. So um, creating it as a material versus something that's going to end up uh, in the oceans. Not only does REI send those plastic poly bags to be recycled, but their suppliers are now part of the process as well. Kit says this plan to limit the number of bags and to recycle the ones they do get actually came from one of their frontline workers. They got tired of pulling plastic bags off all the products they received, feeling like it was a waste of time and bad for the environment. Another hugely impactful idea came from the purchasing department, which decided they needed to change their metrics. So merchants being largely our buyers, you know, who decides what goes in an REI store um, or online? Uh, those are our merchant teams. They have a lot of power in a retail organization. And, you know, I think for a long time, you know, they had been largely trained on what their important metrics were, were things like inventory turn and margin and sales and those kind of things. And really, sustainability was something that was, sure, I get that, but that's kind of off to the side. Like, that might be bonus points. And we really did a lot of work with that organization to create them as internal champions of those putting our sustainability metrics and expectations. We now score all of our brands based on that product impact standards and questionnaire. And they are actually prioritizing vendors and products that meet those attributes. And so they're actually become our greatest champions. And I think for a lot of them, that's really brought so much meaning into their work. It's not just, hey, I work for REI as an umbrella, right? And therefore, <laughs> you know, I have the green halo. No, I am actually through the work that I am doing. I am helping drive and actually move the needle across the industry on sustainability. Kate and the whole team at REI have proven to be leaders on flexibility. Like Mother Nature, they're forced to be reckoned with. And a few years ago, they were about ready to make another big change. They had a plan to sell their headquarters in Seattle, and they were building a brand new space nearby in Bellevue. It was going to be a state-of-the-art facility from a sustainability perspective, but it was one building under the model that everybody would come into the office five days a week and everyone had their own desk and everybody was expected to come in. And that was culturally how we'd always done things. And there are a lot of benefits to those. There are also a lot of drawbacks. So you think about community. Does that only happen in one location? And at headquarters, you think about commutes, right? So how much time people were spending in cars, which obviously gets back to the carbon footprint as well. But also just if one of our priorities is time outside and we believe that our employees should have a whole life, for a lot of people, that was, you know, a big, a big barrier. And it was hard to balance many other things that they had going on in their lives. And we also had employees distributed all over, you know, the area. Area. So picking one point that was a different point that we had before is, is very disruptive for people. I also think that the pandemic showed us that we weren't sure that we could make it work doing virtual or hybrid work, and it actually worked quite well. 
we decided to pivot to, obviously, we sold that headquarters to Facebook, and we are now piloting what we're calling more of a satellite office model, even in this area. So we have three different spaces that our employees can go to. So when they need or want to come together, more around the work and the why, less so around, you know, you got to be in on a certain day. And so often that looks like team gatherings, that looks like workshops, working sessions, but almost all of those are still hybrid. Talk about a pivotal moment to go from building a brand new state-of-the-art facility to moving away from the idea of a headquarters at all. Kid says the response from their employees have been tremendous, but it hasn't been without its hurdles. While REI has tried to ensure that all meetings and events can be held in a hybrid manner, some things just had to be done in person. At least that's what they thought. Earlier this year, we relaunched our lifetime membership proposition and all the benefits underneath that. And for something as significant of that, we really need to do some, you know, kind of wall walks of like, let's go through the customer journey and the customer experience at all of our different touch points. Let's make sure it's cohesive. Let's be able to put sticky notes on. Let's be able to call things out. Well, how do we engage our remote employees around that or people who weren't comfortable coming to the office yet? So we had some really cool technology around people being able to be fully part of that discussion and actually just being able to see and engage with those customer journeys in a hybrid manner. Kate is actually talking about the Microsoft Surface Hub. I actually had the pleasure of launching this product for Microsoft. Our idea there was really to enable people to have meetings together, whether you're in the room together or in a hybrid mode, but also to collaborate and create this immersive experience where you could do whiteboarding together and co-create. And that really addressed their need. There have been so many changes for REI over the years, and you might wonder how all this affects their revenue. Kate says it's proven that what's good for the planet actually coincides with what's good for their bottom line. A couple of proof points that we have there. I mean, certainly there's a high amount of payback just in terms of getting after things like energy efficiency across your operations. I think those are more of the no-brainers. They often have a very short period payback. So I I won't dive deep into that. I would say what's been really interesting that we've seen is two things. One, as as we've gotten better data and understanding around when I talk about products that have preferred sustainability attributes, do consumers actually care? And we've seen actually an accelerating proof point that the answer is by far yes. So the percentage of our products that actually drive an outsized amount of demand, that has been growing year over year, where even those that have the most preferred attributes for sustainability, that's about 16% of our products that we sell, and that's driving over a third of our demand. And that is an accelerating trend. So I think we're seeing increasingly that we don't need to prove that consumers want it and that they care, that it's good business, and that's part of why they're going to come to us in the first place. The other one is when we talk about the circular economy, I think that started with, like, great, that's a great way to drive more margin recovery on our damages. Sure. And if you're not already doing that and you're in this type of business, I would highly recommend it. Um, It makes a lot of sense both for the consumer and from a business standpoint. But what we're seeing that's really compelling as well is that our members who engage in the circular economy and largely through our used business drive outsized amount of lifetime value. So we look over, we have long-tenured members, those sort of things, but it really becomes an accelerant. 
for both existing members. And then it is a really big membership acquisition driver on the other side as well. So bringing new people into the organization, new customers, obviously everyone wants to be broadening their relevance and the overall size of their customer base. And that's been one of the key vehicles we can do that that's really differentiating. So those are some other things I would say that along along the good, good for business. Similarly, as we will start to talk to some of our suppliers over in Asia about this energy transition we're talking about, that is not just with a idea of you know reducing carbon and hitting commitments. Those things definitely have a really strong business case and ROI with a relatively quick payback around just the energy efficiency that you would get from transitioning to more clean energy sources. And that membership acquisition piece continues to be one of the major goals for REI. They're actively using data to better serve their members and to inform their sustainability journey. Kate says not only is this work good for the company, it's good for the planet. We've really thought about it in terms of how can we help drive inclusivity? So a big piece of this is do people feel welcome? Do they feel safe? Safety being a particularly big issue recently. For a long period of time, we may talk as an organization about how wonderful it is to go out into the woods. Well, you know, if you're a black person in the Southeast, going out into the woods may mean a very different thing. How do we understand that? How do we talk to people in a different way? How do we actually create community groups and partner with organizations who are actually trying to change that and make that happen, like Outdoor Afro, for example, is a, is a great partner of ours. Um, so really partnering with organizations at the local level to drive change there. It is um, being inclusive in terms of marketing, right? So how are we expanding relevance of, you know, we talk about copy, our marketing materials, that kind of stuff. Yes, it can be things like language and how things come up. It can be our uh, product. You know, a lot of people may not think about this, but when you think about inclusive colorways, a lot of uh, people may not think about skin tone and how certain colors that they gravitate to might be more flattering on their skin tone. How are we thinking about ways that we might be perhaps unintentionally uh, not welcoming to people based on um, the colorways that we offer. So there's really a lot of work happening there um, around um, just inclusivity and welcoming and belonging. We're also trying to do really a lot at the local community level. This is an issue that really varies depending on where you are in the country, and there are different organizations doing great work. We've been had a long history of offering grants and work with local nonprofit partners and actually trying to organize more you know, community events and those sort of things to really bring people together and see themselves in getting outside. And I would say a big part of it, too, is even from an enterprise strategy standpoint, too, I think, you know, we've long been known as a company that is well known for camping and hiking. That's not how everybody gets outside. Thinking about uh, activities like cycling and running, we don't have to convince people of color to do activities they're not already doing. They already, in millions by the number, are getting outside via cycling and running and other activities. How do we meet them where they are and help them feel like they belong and they're relevant and we have things for them to serve their needs? So I would say also it gets down to location. Are we in the communities? Are we present um, where they are from both a physical retail standpoint or our experiences or events or other ways where um, we're coming, again, to those communities versus expecting them to come to us? Kate and the team at REI have also learned a lot on their journey to be more inclusive. We have a lot we can learn from their journey, too. Microsoft has one of the most ambitious and comprehensive climate commitments that's out there. They made it around the time when we were making ours, and I think we really drew a lot of inspiration from it. There are some companies out there that aren't really taking responsibility for their full emissions, if you think across their whole value chain, or that are saying, well... 
we're going to sign up for it, but it's really, you know, it's really going to be up to emissions intensity. So it'd be like the carbon per unit of revenue. So we can still grow, but we'll make it less bad. And um, I think they've really done an excellent job around setting bold commitments and also open sourcing some of the work that they're doing, which is really important. So yes, you know, it's an organization that obviously has a tremendous amount of resource connection, access to technology, access to partners globally that can actually make this happen. You know, and we're fortunate to have them headquartered, obviously not too far from us here in Seattle. So look forward to doing more partnership down the road about not just what we can learn, but are there ways that we could partner together. I think a lot of people think technology is going to save them. Technology can only save you if you have clarity of what you want to do with technology. And with REI, it's so exciting, and with Kate, to see how their clarity of purpose has enabled them to just use technology with clarity. Whether it's data to inform what they do with their members and how they're going to acquire more, whether it's how it informs their sustainability journey, or whether it's how they work together. Think about this, they just sold their headquarters. What a bold movement on their part. But it's because they had clarity. Why do you want people to drive to work? Why do you want to consume all that electricity every day in that building? They just knew it was not right for them based on their purpose. Thank you for listening to Pivotal. I'd love to hear your story and your Pivotal moment. So don't hesitate to follow me and share on LinkedIn. Audience information is also available in the show notes. Our show is produced by Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Special thanks to Lin Yang and our partners at We Communications.